Turn this evening, please, to the book of Philippians and chapter 2. <clears throat> Turning to Philippians chapter 2. The text we're going to consider this evening is from verse 5 through to the end of verse 8. I'll read these verses, these brief verses for context. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It is a thing of wonder that there are those who do not believe in God, who do not believe in the Bible, but yet will dedicate their entire working lives to the study of the scriptures. <clears throat> there are those across this world in universities, in seminaries, who will take up a portion of scripture and they'll turn it this way and that way and they'll ruminate upon it. They'll take it all apart. They'll put it all together again. They'll write books about it. They'll run degree courses about it. They may win the plaudits of those who call themselves Christendom for their higher learning and scholarship that us mere mortals could not even deign to aspire to. But for all that, they don't actually believe it. It is people such as this who will take a portion of scripture such as this that we have in Philippians 2. And when they come to verses 6 to 11, they will say such things as, no doubt in a higher form of learning and intellectualism, these are simply not the words of Paul. This is not the theology of Paul, they may say. These are not phrases that he would have used. This is not his theology. As if they have sat down with Paul at the fireside and discussed theology with him for years and they know all about him from their higher forms of learning. And I have no doubt there are genuine, orthodox, evangelical scholars who may also say such things and who do believe the scriptures. And who may also go on to say what many scholars say of this passage from verse 6 to verse 11. You see, this is not the words of Paul. You see, this is a Christian hymn that has been lost somewhere in the mists of time. And the only person who ever seemed to read it was the Apostle Paul and he copied it. My friends, these may be intellectual words. These may be the words of higher learning. And higher criticism. 
But they're the words of unbelief. I don't mean to disparage any of those who come with that frame of mind earnestly, with the help of God's Spirit and humbly desiring his help. But it's these kinds of scholarly arguments that are put out there that have done untold damage to our trust in the inspired and infallible word of the living God. There is rampant confusion in our society today and ignorance born out of that kind of teaching, that kind of rumination as to what the Bible actually teaches and as to what Christianity actually is. You see, the Bible is not just a piece of literature. It's not something that is beneath the scholars who consider themselves to be sitting somewhere above it. It's the inspired word of God. I may say these words do not contain the theology of Paul. But I may equally say they contain not only the theology of Paul but the theology of John and of Luke. Because these words are the theology of God. This is the word of the God of heaven. Paul did not copy this word down from some fragment he found lying in a bin in some pyramid somewhere. Paul wrote these words as he was inspired and moved by the spirit of the living God. The irony is that in writing these words, these inspired words, Paul was at pains to level his readers, to take those who consider themselves to be uh, somehow superior in their learning and their classical scholarship and to put them down and to say let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus Paul is at pains to take those who are weak and who are humble and who see themselves as worthless and to show them the treasures of the gospel In these words we have something far greater than the mere theology of a man. Something greater than some undiscovered Christian hymn written by man. In these words we have the very essence of Christianity itself. We will consider the first part of this hymn, of this passage. We will consider it under this title. What is Christianity? The first thing we see in verse 6 is this. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. The verse reads, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now in times past, perhaps this fact that Christianity is all about Jesus Christ would not even need to have been stated. There is a, a time not that long hence in which everyone in this country would have understood what Christianity was, but no longer. But now the expectation in our society, in our schools, in our media, in the places where we work, dare I say it, even in the church, 
The expectation is that Christianity is all about us. It's all about us finding peace, finding enjoyment in life. It's all about doing good and being neighbourly. It's all about some inner warmth that we find with nostalgia as we listen to the singing of psalms even. All revolving around man and man's experience. All about what we can get from it. That's the expectation today. That's what, when we speak of Christianity today, that's what, that's what comes into people's minds. But when we come to the Bible, we find that Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. But even to say that is not enough. Because now everyone has their own Jesus Christ. Everyone in their own imaginations and in their perceptions have created a Jesus Christ of their own making. But Jesus Christ is not an idea. He is not a philosophy. So what does our passage teach us that he is? Well, it teaches us that Jesus Christ is eternal. It says, who being in the form of God. The form of God. What can that possibly mean? God who is a spirit. God who has no form. Who has no body. What can it mean to be in the form of, of God? Well, this is powerful language. It's powerful because it depicts the eternal glory of God. The idea being that before Jesus Christ came to this world, he was clothed with the same majesty and the same glory as God the Father. John 17 verse 5, Jesus spoke of this himself when he said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Being in the form of God then is a reference to this eternal existence of Jesus Christ. He did not come into being when he was incarnated. He always existed. We saw something of that from John 1 last week. This then is where our Christianity needs to begin. It needs to begin in eternity. It needs to begin with the eternal God of heaven. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible commences with those words, In the beginning, God. That eternal existence. The God who has no beginning. The God who is the first cause of all other effects. This phrase then marks the great source of everything else. This great majesty, this great glory of God. The unimaginable splendor of an eternally existing God. Jesus Christ was in the form of God. There's a hint here of the grand purpose of it all, of everything. All for the glory of this eternal God. So our Christianity begins here. It begins in eternity with the eternal Jesus Christ. But we're also told that Jesus Christ is God. And where our verse continues, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, by equal with God, is, it's not simply meant to be on the same level as him. In the sense that uh, two people can be equal to one another. Not rank or status, but rather this is a complete identification of the one with the other. They are the same thing. Equal in that sense. 
Jesus Christ is God in size, in number, in quality. Everything about him is God. He is God. That there is no robbery really gives us a sense that this uh, godness, if we could use that word, is his by right of existence. Because he exists as God, therefore he is entitled to be equal with God. He is God. There's a complete parity there. There's no becoming God. There's no seizing or taking to himself. Now in Christ's own day upon earth during his ministry, the Jews understood well the implications of Jesus Christ's ministry and work. In John 5 verse 18 we read, or we read, sorry, that therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. The Jews understood that what Jesus was teaching would make him to be God. Indeed, Christ himself said in John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. But the key thing here is that when we add this teaching to what we have already seen about the eternity of Jesus Christ, we discover that Jesus Christ was always God from eternity. There was never a time when he became God. There was no beginning to his being God. He, he always was. And that the Jews did not understand. The accusation they leveled at him was that he made himself God. Likewise, in response to Jesus in John 10, the Jews go on to say in verse 33 of that chapter, Thou being a man, makest thyself God. But the true teaching of Christianity, the true teaching of the Bible, is that Jesus Christ was always God. Perhaps you're in here this evening, and you brought with you this evening your preconceived ideas about what Christianity actually is. I am a guest amongst you. I will presume no knowledge of the spiritual state of any one of you gathered. And perhaps this Christianity of the eternal God, of Jesus Christ, as the beginning of our Christianity, perhaps that is entirely foreign to you. Maybe that's not what you expected Christianity to be or to begin with at all. We see our problem is that as creatures of time, we have no true concept of what it means to be eternal. Our entire experience in our lives is one succession of moments after another. That's all we have ever known. There have been moments past. There will be moments to come. We are different now from how we were this morning. One Linear progression from then to now to then. That's all we have. That's as far as our minds can travel. But here is a grand truth. And it's a truth that ought to humble the proudest mind among us. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Can you comprehend that? 
The simple facts of the gospel begin with this. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, equal in every way to God in his very being. No mere man. He was no mere example, though he was also an example. He didn't live and die simply to set before us a good model of behaviour. He was the creator of all things. He is above all things. He is the reason all things exist in the first place. This is the Christ of our Christianity. For the child of God, this is a truth we must never lose sight of. It can be easy for us to forget that our God, our Christ, is a supernatural God. We don't see much of the supernatural in our day-to-day lives. When we brush our teeth in the morning, we don't think much of supernatural things. When we go through the ups and downs of our working lives, of our family lives, of all that we go through day to day, the supernatural can become very far from our minds. But our God is a supernatural God. He is real. Whenever we sin, we behave as though we forget that our God is supernatural. Whenever we doubt him, whenever we doubt his word, we forget that he is a supernatural God. There's a challenge to our hearts. We need to meditate on these words. We need to turn them over prayerfully. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Pray over it, child of God. Pray that those truths would grip your soul and excite you. This is the Christ of our Christianity. But secondly, Christianity is all about Jesus Christ becoming man. We see that made out for us in verse 7, in the first part of verse 8. We're told that, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. We stand at the end of verse 6, surveying Christ in all his glory, all of his eternal glory. And we stand at that, at that moment, at the highest vantage point that is ever afforded to man. God's revelation of himself to man, to us, never gets any higher than this. God has revealed to us a little glimpse of eternity. The the eternal existence of himself. And now when we come to verse 7. It is as if we plunge from that highest vantage point. To the lowest depths that we can plumb. We go from the highest form of being in heaven. To the lowest form of a reasonable creature. That of a slave. And here it is. That we find our Jesus Christ, the eternal God, becoming man. And notice that Jesus Christ became man voluntarily. It says in our text that he made himself of no reputation. Now in the same sense in verse 6 where we read that he was that being in the form of God. We now read that glory being Laid aside as it were. 
in, when, he's, when we're told that he's in the form of God, we have him being clothed in his majesty, clothed in the form of God. And now, being in the form of a slave, being in the form of a servant, we see that glory being concealed with our humanity. Now, although the word translated here made himself of no reputation, and that was all one word in the original, it has this meaning of emptied himself. It's important to note that there is no sense here of Jesus Christ ceasing to be God when he became man. That is impossible. God is immutable. He's unchangeable. There can be no ceasing of Christ's deity. He did not stop being God. Rather, in becoming man, Christ's glory was concealed from view whilst he was here on earth. Until that moment we saw this morning, when he was enthroned in heaven in all his glory once again. So there's no sense here in Christ ceasing to be God. What we see is before he was made incarnate, the only state of existence known for Jesus Christ, for the second person of the Godhead, before he became incarnate was that of glory. But now in coming, now in his coming here, to this world, taking upon him the form of a servant. And this is all behind the scenes. We see his emptiness instead. But the key idea here, and the important thing to grasp in this, in this making himself of no reputation, was that this eternal glorious God so condescended to obscure his glory for a time, Entirely of his own will. It was a voluntary subjection on the part of Christ. There was no compulsion, no necessity outside of his own holy will. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, we have an inspired commentary on that moment. When Paul describes it in these terms, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. It is this voluntary change of state, the change of how, how Christ manifested himself, how he showed himself to the world, from that of splendor and glory to that of poverty. Calvin puts it like this, when he might have justly asserted his divinity, he was pleased to exhibit nothing but the attributes of a mean and despised man. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ voluntarily entering into our humanity, leaving that state of glory that he had with the Father before the world was and willingly emptying himself of all of that and making himself of no reputation. But not only did he not assert the divinity that belonged to him when he was incarnate, not only did he willingly conceal his eternal glory, but also we see that Jesus Christ became the servant. We read that he took upon him the form of a servant. Now, there is so much packed into that simple phrase. But the key point is this. Because that same phrase is used, form of a servant against form of God, 
What we are being directed to here is that contrast with the majesty that he had as God. God on the one hand and slave on the other hand. The, this is, these two things are as far apart as language can express. The focus here that the Spirit would have us pay attention to is the infinite distance between the glory of God and the humiliation of Christ as man, as God incarnate. The infinite distance. It was that infinite distance that only Jesus Christ and his incarnation could bridge. Now in our explanation of Christianity that we have been tracing through in these words, beginning in eternity and reaching this point, this is the point at which most people in our society might begin. If you were to ask them if they know anything of Christianity, what they thought that Christianity involved, this is the point where most people may begin. The Incarnation. Those who have any perception of Jesus Christ at all, they may think of his coming into the world as the babe in the manger. But the culture in which we live, and the culture, may I say, in which we have lived for many generations, has so fluffed up that scene of the babe in the manger, that we imagine in our minds some tranquil scene, some peaceful happy scene of the birth of a baby into the world. But there is no scene of glory in the Bible. There is no scene of tranquility in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is a scene, men and women, of deep condescension. But there is more to this condescension than simply an example of lowliness. Christ didn't become a servant so that we would have an illustration of how to serve one another. Rather, we see from this verse 7 also that Jesus Christ, he became a servant that he might become one of us. Verse 7 reads, And was made in likeness of men. The language we have here is quite definite. There was a moment in time in which Jesus Christ, the eternal God, became man. He existed in his being as the eternal God before, but now he has become man. To say that he was in the likeness of man is simply a way to reserve that truth that he was still God. He did not stop being God in order to become man. We've seen that. And the verses that follow, which we won't consider this evening, they continue to draw out the distinction between Jesus Christ, the man, and every other man that ever lived. But there is a definite, a real humanity, a true body and a reasonable soul that Christ now takes to himself. But the idea here is that Christ did not merely take on himself a lower form of creature. If Christ wanted to simply give us an example of lowliness and humility, he could have stooped so far as to become an angel. That would have set us a good example. 
But no, he became a man. This was a very deliberate act that was absolutely necessary for the execution of that great plan of Christianity. Christ was not showing us something. He was doing something. He was not setting an example for us. He was becoming one of us. He was not showing us how to act. But he was acting for us. That's the nub of it. In Romans 8 verse 3, that same thought is elaborated in these words. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. See here that same word, likeness. Here again we're being told that Jesus Christ became one of us, but with this additional detail added, the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, he did not assume our sinful nature. But this is another key truth of Christianity right here. It was Adam whom we read of in Genesis chapter 3. It was Adam as the first representative of all mankind, of all of his descendants, who sinned. It was from Adam that we inherited our sinful natures. The promised Redeemer that we read of in Genesis 3.15 was described as the seed of the woman. And so we have something in that of the, of the importance of that key truth of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is not some myth. This is not some legend, some fairy tale. This is one of the key truths of our Christianity. Jesus Christ had no earthly father. He did not inherit the sinful nature of Adam when he became man. But he nonetheless became a true man. He was the seed of the woman. But he had God as his father. He had a real body. He had a reasonable soul. But he did not inherit a sinful fallen nature. Now, men and women, we have stepped right into gospel territory. Now we stand at that moment. We stand at that point in history. We stand at that point in the revelation of God where we have the eternal Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, become man, become one of us, standing in a place, the only place, where there can be any hope of the salvation of any man. Why would the eternal God, why would the second person of the Trinity leave aside his heavenly glory, veil his glory, and condescend to take upon himself our own frail, weak natures? Why would Jesus Christ ever become one of us? It's because he will do what we could never do. He will do what Adam failed to do. He will do what you failed to do. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is no mere Christmas story. This is no feel-good example of humanity. This is a mystery. The very God of heaven 
The one who sits outside of time steps into time. The one who had no beginning and who will have no end. He is the one who steps into time, not as some superhuman, like the Greeks or the Romans. Not as some heavenly creature, like the angels. But he steps into time as one of us. Christ, or Saviour, or flesh. We see that Christ was no mere example, but there is a gentle rebuke to all of us here. And there's a comfort. This is what Paul is pointing to in verse 5 when he says, Let this mind be in you. If the eternal God of heaven, the highest being, the supreme God, could become man, could stoop so low as to become one of us, then ought not we to be humble? Ought we not to be meek towards one another? We ought not to have high views of ourselves. We are not called to stoop lower than the dignity of our humanity. If it was simply an example, if Christ's incarnation was, no mere was nothing but a mere example for us to follow, then we ought to become animals. We're not asked to stoop lower than our dignity. We are simply told to behave like equals. Whether you have great possessions, great wealth, great status, or whether you have nothing, whether you are outcasts, whether you are on the breadline, the message for you is the same. We're all of the same order. We are all of equal dignity in the sight of God. But for the sinner, yet in your sins, uh, those who know nothing of a personal saving relationship with this Jesus Christ of our Christianity, the message for you is this. Stop trusting in yourself as though you were something, as, as though you were capable of doing what only God incarnate could do. Life is brief, no matter how old you live to. And then what? There's such a thing as eternity. Death is not the end. Time itself, time itself will come to a close. And that is not the end. But there's more, there's more to this Christianity than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming man. We notice in verse 8 that our Christianity is all about Jesus Christ taking our place. We read that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You might be asking this evening, what has all this got to do with me? And this is what we're confronted with. In this verse, if you're sitting in this gathering and you're unsaved and you don't see the relevance of an eternal God stepping into time as a man, then get to the edge of your seat and listen to our text. 
Firstly, we note that Jesus Christ was more than a mere example. We've alluded to this, but see it in these words. And being found in fashion as a man. The significance in these words is to draw the distinction with all that we've already considered. What we learn about the form of Christ, both as God and as a slave, is as it were behind the scenes. It was in the mind of God. It's revealed to us here. But no one could see this. No one could see God's eternal glory, Christ in his eternal glory, when he was born as a baby and grew up as a child. This was not visible to the world in those days. No one could see that he had stooped so low. It was all as it were behind the scenes. No one could see that change that had taken place when he took on himself the form of a slave. But now in his humanity, he appears to all around him as a man. Think about that. We think of Jesus Christ as, as believers. We, we think of Jesus Christ as the God-man, and rightly so. But those who encountered him initially in those days, their first experience of him was as a man. That's what they could see. It's his humanity that is becoming more evident to us in this verse. This is absolutely critical. <coughs> Jesus Christ, as one of us, was standing in our place. He was found in fashion as a man. He was our substitute. That was the whole point of it. Only once in the history of the world before this moment in time did man come to earth with no earthly father. That man was Adam. He was placed here by God with one clear expectation and that was of obedience. Obedience to God's law. That was his simple trial. Adam failed that trial. Adam sinned in disobeying God. The promised consequence of that disobedience was that the guilt and the corruption and the death that Adam accrued passed on to all his descendants by ordinary generation. You are a sinner because of Adam. You inherit your sinful nature from Adam. And in your sinful nature, you merit enough. You merit enough with God for eternal damnation on your own right. From Adam onwards, everyone who would be born of a man and a woman would bring with them into life the full consequences of the fall. Perhaps you sit here this evening and you've been born of a man and a woman and you don't believe it. Maybe you don't see that you are guilty of Adam's sin. Maybe you don't see that you're guilty of your own sin. Well, the existence, the very existence, the very fact of death proves it. As the fountainhead, Adam was corrupted. Everything that flows from him is corrupted. But now, in the coming of the Son of God, 
born of a woman with no earthly father. We have what our Bible calls the last Adam. Just as Adam was the representative of all those who would be born of him, so Jesus Christ has taken upon himself that representative headship for all who will be born of God. So Christ is no mere example for us to follow. Rather, he is the representative of those who will follow. He acts on our behalf. But how did he act? Well, we see secondly from this verse that Jesus Christ lived our life. We read he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The humility in view here is in the sense of making himself low. Christ was the God of heaven. In that glorified state that we read of, that glorified eternal existence, Christ owed no obedience. He had no debt of obedience. Adam was created with a debt of obedience. Christ had no debt of obedience in heaven. He was with the Father in glory before the world began. He was one part of the Trinity. He owed no debt of obedience. But he willingly laid all that aside and he humbled himself. There's that voluntariness coming back into view. And Christ came with this mission in mind. He took upon himself our debt of obedience. Being a true humanity, Jesus was capable of experiencing suffering and trial. This obedience, this debt of obedience that he took upon himself would entail hardship. It would entail pain. And as our text tells us, it would entail death. There were no limits to this humble obedience. There is no obedience that goes farther than death. This obedience of Jesus Christ that he came to pay was the perfect obedience. But why did this eternal Son of God submit himself to an obedience that would lead to his human death? Why would he submit to the suffering and the torture that he endured? Why did Jesus Christ have to become man? It was because we failed. Adam failed to be obedient. Adam failed to keep God's law. We failed to keep that holy law. We constantly fail. Every attempt that we make to keep God's law, we fail. If you're struggling and battling with sin as an unbeliever, you know it to be true. You pick one sin and you try giving it up and you come back and tell me that you haven't failed. Child of God struggling with indwelling sin, you know it to be true. We fail in our obedience. We constantly fail. And Christianity really comes down to something as direct as this. We can't keep God's law. Isn't that the truth? We're incapable of it. We sin, we miss the mark, we're disobedient. If any man would ever be accepted by God then, only God could provide the way of acceptance. And this is the way that God has provided. Christ had to be a man because we are men. He had to become one of us in order to represent us. 
He had to be obedient because we can't be obedient. Romans 5.19, which we read, it sums it up like this. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You see, my friends, this evening Christianity is all about Jesus Christ taking our place, doing what we couldn't do. He lived that perfect life, the life that we couldn't live. But there's more. Jesus Christ died our death. In verse 8, we, we conclude with these words, even the death of the cross. If our only problem was that we were incapable of rendering perfect obedience to God, that were enough. That were enough to damn us in hell. That were enough to bring Christ down to adorn himself with our humanity. But what about all our feelings? What about our sins? What has the scriptures got to say about your sin? says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. Every one of us gathered, we deserve it. Our sins have earned for us an eternal death in hell. That is all we can expect, were it not for this Christianity. Our Christianity is all about Jesus Christ taking our place and the significance of this death. And the way it's put here, even the death of the cross, this was no natural death. This was a penal death. Jesus Christ died the death of a condemned man. But that was our condemnation. He died the condemnation under the condemnation of his own elect people. In Hebrews 2 verse 9 we read that we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honour that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Is this not our whole message? Is this not our Christianity? Jesus Christ the eternal God of heaven willingly submitted having his glory concealed for a time entered this world adorned with our humanity lived the perfect life that we could never die and died the death of our condemnation. That's the gospel of saving grace. That's the gospel of our Christianity. That's your only hope of eternity. Child of God here tonight, do you recognize this as your Christianity? Is this the same gospel that you believe? For you then the message is a reminder this is everything that matters. Nothing in this world matters more than these precious truths. So let your life reflect it. So let your fellowship with one another reflect it. This is all that matters. Or Jesus Christ or Christianity is all that matters. In short, as Paul put it in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's purpose here is not to set forth Christ as no more than an example. Rather, he is the Redeemer. He is the only way to eternal salvation. But being our Redeemer, he becomes our example also. 
Your Christianity is a religion of Christ-likeness, so let this mind be in you. But a final word this evening to the sinner. Whatever you thought Christianity to be, whatever Jesus Christ you had in your head, when you come in these doors this evening, you need to see that this is the real Christianity of the Bible. This is the true Christianity. You see, it's not all about you at all. It's all about God. You do feature in this Christianity. But you feature as the one who has broken God's holy law. You feature as the one who has merited your own eternal damnation. As one who is utterly incapable of living in obedience to God. And the question to you is this. What will this Christianity be to you? Will it be the Christ who lived for you? Will this Christianity be the Christ who died for you? Let's stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy mercy towards us. We thank Thee, O Lord, that in the plan of redemption that was set down in eternity, before there even was a creation, before there was an Adam and a fall and sin, we thank Thee, O Lord, that for Thine own glory Thou had so ordained that Thou would choose out a people, that Thou would elect them to that everlasting life, and that Thou would send Thy Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, to become incarnate, to take upon Him the flesh of a man, to live that life as a substitute for those chosen people. But, O oh, gracious God, we pray with Thee that Thou would search out those lost sheep. Take anything that has been of Thyself that has been spoken this evening and by the power of the Spirit of God apply it to the hearts of everyone gathered. Lord, we pray that Thou would stop the sinner in their tracks and that Thou would draw them lovingly to the Saviour, to the Christ of our Christianity. Encourage us as Thy people and build us up in this knowledge of our Saviour, this understanding of the Jesus Christ of Scripture. O Lord in heaven, Help us to do all things to thy glory. And help us, O Lord, to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray, continue with us as we sing to thy praise and to thy honour. For these things we ask, praying for the forgiveness of our sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll come to the close of our service this evening by singing Psalm 103.
Psalm 103. <clears throat> now we'll sing from verse 1 to verse 4 of this psalm. A psalm of David. O thou my soul, bless God the Lord and all that in me is. Be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. Bless, O my soul, the Lord thy God, and not forgetful be. Of all his gracious benefits he hath bestowed on thee. Psalm 103, singing verses 1 to 4 to God's glory. meeting this evening in prayer. Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for a day spent in Thy courts. We thank Thee, Lord, for Thy mercy and Thy loving kindness, for Thy long-suffering towards us. Though, Lord, when we gather to worship Thee, we do so in our frailty and in our weakness. But, Lord, we thank Thee that we do so with the help of that intercessory work of this Christ uh, who offers our, uh, our prayers before the throne of grace uh, purified and Lord with all of the sins that are 
that bespot our, uh, our efforts at worship, all of them removed and purged and offered as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And so, Lord, we look to thee now, and we pray for thy blessing to be upon us. We pray, O God, that the remainder of this week that lies before us, Lord, would be sanctified unto thee. But every step that we take, every conversation we have, Lord, every action that we undertake, all of our duties and day-to-day life, that all of them, Lord, would have something of uh, the sanctity of thy Spirit upon it, that the things that we have heard and read and sung, uh, Lord, the things that we have considered, the things that thy Spirit may have opened to us even this day, would be food for our souls and would keep us going and would sustain us and would encourage us as we continue on our pilgrimage this week. Lord, now we pray that thy blessing would be upon this congregation, that every one of us would know, Lord, thy nearness. Lord, that thou would save the lost, that thou would edify the church of Christ and build us up. These things we pray in Jesus' name.